0: the church for generations and that has always been our church's kind of vision and, and motto if you will and so we're taking time this month to go through and so they asked us to come and speak on youth the generation of youth david and i have been speaking working with the youth in this church for nearly 15 years so we are um, just really privileged to come speak to you today about that and when you're asked to speak on youth it's impossible not to speak on culture so really today Our topic is going to be about our cultural climate that we live in today and how it affects youth and how we can help youth be successful in their faith and in their life in the current cultural climate that we live in. So it will apply to everyone because you are all a part of this culture we are in right now. So let's start digging into this. The age-old struggle that never changes between generations is that the older generation will look at the current culture and be like, Oh my word, this is so much worse than it was when I was growing up. Like, it's so bad. You can't do that. You can't do this. Like, oh, what are we going to do? And what's the youth's response to that always in every generation? It's so cool and I want to do everything and I want to be a part of everything because you're just old and you don't get it. It's a new day. So that struggle goes on and on and repeats itself cycle after cycle with new generations replacing it. And so as Christians, we often approach culture and think of culture and we ask the question, where should I draw the line? And this is a well-intended approach but slightly misguided. This should not be our first question when approaching culture. It's a good question to ask, but I don't think it should be the first one. It should be down the line, because certainly, eventually, you need to ask, is this something I should be doing, or does it conflict with my faith? So it's an important question. But I don't believe it's the first question we should ask in regards to culture and our place in it and how we participate in it. And the reason why I don't think it's the best first question is because it's a little bit too simplistic to be helpful. And I'll explain that because as Christians, we tend to look at the world as, or the culture as spiritual or worldly, right? And everything spiritual, we're like, okay, is good. And anything worldly, we can categorize as bad. But it's too simple, because that's not always the case, right? Because we know, if we take an honest look throughout history and Christian history, things that are Christian have not always been good. Leaders fail. Organizations can be dishonest. It's just a matter of fact. So not everything Christian is always good. Not to mention that songs and entertainment and movies that are Christian usually fail to reach, you know, excellent levels. Okay, I'm not dissing anything, I'm just being honest. So it's really too simplistic to say anything spiritual and Christian is good. And at the same time, we can't say anything worldly, everything worldly is bad, because there's many organizations, people, uh, art expressions that aren't based in Christianity, you don't have a Christian base, but have done incredible good things for the world so we don't really want to use this question or this view in how to approach culture the right way so i'm going to give you a better first question when approaching culture but before i can give you that question i need to lay a little bit of a foundation so just stay with me for a moment and we're going to use this foundation throughout the rest of the teaching the bible is unique for many many reasons but one of the ways it's unique is that it's more than just a book about morality or religion. It's a story of the creation of mankind, the creation of the world. It's a whole narrative. And it's important that you see the Bible in this whole story, because, and I'll explain why it's important in a minute. So the Bible can be summarized in four chapters. And I'm just gonna go over them quickly because if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't uh, know the Christian views, I want you to be on the same page with us. And also if you are a Christian, I wanna make sure you see the Bible and summarize the Bible in these four chapters as a whole narrative. So I'll just go through them quickly. We have creation, obviously God creates the whole world, the universe, mankind. He is the author and we live in perfect harmony with him. He is in control and we are his children who obey him, right? You had perfection in the garden. Then chapter two, is the fall, where people were like, "Mm, maybe not, maybe I know better, maybe I want to be my own God. And so we chose sin, and we chose to disobey him. Sin enters the story, right? Now, order is chaos, destruction, murder. Sin enters, and it's brokenness, Happens, And what's interesting and unique about the Bible is that we are the antagonists, right? We're the antagonists and we're the ones in need of saving. So the bad wasn't just out there in the world. Like other religions, it's always like the bad is out there. We, the bad was in here. We were the antagonists. So the fall happens, sin enters. Then we have chapter three, redemption. From the moment we chose sin, God's redemptive work began. He covered Adam and Eve's nakedness with clothes. He saved a family on a ship when the earth was destroyed. He chose a people, Israel, to be his people. And it all comes into a giant crescendo with the life and death of Jesus Christ, right? So there we have the redemptive work. He dies, he pays for our sins so that we can be restored back into right relationship with him. But that's not the last chapter. There's a fourth chapter and that's the restoration. And that's what we have not seen yet, but we believe is coming because the scriptures tell us. And that's when God comes back for us and it says he's creating a new heaven and a new earth for us to live with him forever together. And you can see Christ's words in Revelation when he says, behold, I'm making all things new. So we live right here. We're right there in the timeline. We're between redemption and restoration, right? Because we live after the cross, but we have not, God has not yet returned to take us to the home he's making for us. So why did we take the few moments to talk about the, the Bible as a narrative? And it's because there's a better first question when we approach culture. So what better than where should I draw the line? The first question should be, what is our salvation for what is it for because christians we love to talk about what god has saved us from right saved us from my sinful life from this from this to you know eternal life and eternity with him but we have to know That God has not just saved you from something, but he has saved you for something. He has saved you for a purpose, a very specific purpose, because you are to join in this narrative. You are to join in. You are a part of this story, the narrative of creation, of the Bible, in its whole four four chapters. You are a part of that. And we can only know ourselves if we know God, right? Because Christianity has done so much for the world, but one of the greatest things it has done for mankind is given us the value of human life. Value. Value comes because God saved you for a purpose. Our value, our identity is not your job. It's not that you're a dad. It's not that you're a mom. It's not that you're, you have talent. You have hobbies. Your value, your purpose is intrinsic because God saved you for something. You are a part of this giant narrative that spans back throughout history. You think, okay, why are you? what does this have to do with youth? Why are you taking time to talk about this? Because one of the greatest issues our culture faces is a perpetual identity crisis. People don't know who they are. They don't know their purpose because you can't outside of Christ. You can't because any other identity Any other purpose, no matter how well-intended, no matter how good it is for the world, is not eternal outside of God. So the good things you're doing, the job you have, the money you make, great, good, awesome. That's not your identity. But when we make those things our identity and eventually they fail, you won't always work. You might lose your job. You might lose your family. Your children won't be perfect. Your talent... Someone will be better one day. Whatever those things are that we have made our identity, will one day that foundation will crumble if it's not Christ. And so our nation, the youth right now in our culture, struggle with this in a real bad way because our culture is a postmodern culture with no narrative, no cohesive story that they're a part of. You have different religions you can believe in, sure. But there's no, with Christianity not being the narrative for their life, they have no identity. And so the search continues. And so you start to make things, the youth make things, and we all do this, our looks become our identity, our hobbies, our talents. Your behavior becomes your identity. That is one of the most crippling things to our culture right now is our behavior Our inclinations, our desires have been now what people make their identity and it will fail. We want humans flourishing without God. It won't happen. It won't happen. We want to fight for human rights and extend those without knowing what a human is, without knowing human dignity because it comes from Christ. So it's important to understand that Youth in this church, in this culture, and that you as well, no matter your age, know that you are a part of this narrative, this four chapter story of the Bible. There are so many topics that are important. Uh, in our culture that youth are trying to figure out and struggle through, but identity is a big one. We don't have time to go over all of them, but we have things like racial racial tensions, gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, uh, perpetual adolescence. There are so many big issues that need to be talked about to help our youth through that. We don't have time to go to each individual one. So David, in this second half, is going to kind of give us an overview as a church and as parents and as mentors, how to help youth and young adults to navigate through this culture since we don't have time to go through each thing. So I'll just leave you with one example. I was talking to a girl and we were talking about a certain thing in her life that she knew did not line up with the Bible. And and so she was like, I know this doesn't line up with the scriptures. I know that I need to give this up. Uh, Thought process, behavior. But when it came time, I'm like, okay, well, let's let it go. Let's just lay it down. If you're saying you feel the conviction from the Holy Spirit doesn't line up with the scriptures, and tears just streamed down her face, and she said, I won't know who I am if I don't do this anymore. And that's where we're at in our culture. That if you think about giving up a behavior or a hobby or an interest, it's like you're asking them to give up who they are. Because that is what their identity, we're all guilty of it, is based in. And so we want to help encourage you guys as parents and mentors of how to navigate youth through um, our current cultural climate. So David will lead us in the second half.
1: Here we go. We have two reactions that tempt the church in every generation concerning this topic. One is to flee the culture, A.K.A. hunker down, just take care of your owns, right? And then that's also known as the drunken monk option, because that's what the monks did. They were like, the culture's getting weird. Let's go get drunk and have weird haircuts. So that's one of the options that you have, which I discourage. Uh, The other one is to avoid controversial issues in the culture altogether. The problem with both of these is neither one is rooted in love at all. Uh, We have at the core of our faith a God who wrapped himself in human flesh to go experience human experience and to see what the culture was doing in that time. So he went full on into the culture to look at it and to try to change it. And so if that's who our leader is, we ought to resemble our leader, especially with regards to the culture. Uh, We have the incarnation means let's, it's, it's not let's get out of here and stay safe from an evil world. And I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He says this, he goes, if Christians left the areas of the city that were difficult to live in, what kind of Christianity is that? Just a big question mark at the end of that. It wouldn't be a really good, robust Christianity at all, in my opinion. Some like to spiritualize their surrender by suggesting the culture-changing business gets in the way of the people-loving business. But you can't love people by ignoring the cultural evils that victimize them. To just sit there and say the culture is evil in what it's doing, therefore I'm gonna pull myself away, is to leave people hanging to their death, That's, it's a horrible, it's a non-loving response to culture being crazy. Now I like, the, the other thing that I'll anchor this in is in. there are two prayers that Jesus gives to us that are just phenomenal. There's the Lord's Prayer, where he teaches us how to pray, and then there's his High Priestly Prayer in John chapter 17, and this is what he says. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, you and me. This is Jesus telling the Father, like, I, I don't ask you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's referring to Satan there. He's, he's not saying the culture's gonna get all freaking weird and you need to pull these people out before it gets crazy because the people are gonna start dressing weird and believe in weird things. He says, no, don't take them out of that. But our tendency when the culture gets strange is to just kind of go, nope, we're just not gonna entertain those thoughts and ideas, we're not gonna look at those things, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna insulate which is a a bad idea, and I'll I'll get to that. This perspective might sound strange to you if you view the Bible as a two-chapter Bible. If you view it as two chapters, then this sounds strange to you. But if you view it as that four-chapter Bible that Aslan was speaking about earlier, then this won't be out of nowhere. We're we're redeemed, but we're not whisked into heaven yet. We're still here, we haven't walked into, into heaven. So God, intends us to be a part of the reconciliation and we have 2nd Corinthians here love this therefore if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come the old is gone the new is here all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that's you and that's me that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and He has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us to the culture. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become. The righteousness of God. What a humble position we have. That is the cultural moment you are in. Everyone has been created by God for a purpose for a specific time in history and this is your moment. Mm. And there's never been a better opportunity to let Christianity shine in the United States as it is right now. You have this desire, some of us, to be missionaries to the world, and God has brought the world to our feet. Yes. And we can be missionaries here. Yes. It's been jettisoned. Let's put it back in play. It's here. You don't have to hop on a plane anymore. It's at your door. It's in your house. It's, your own, it's the own youth that you're raising. They're here. Let's get to work. Christians should see their culture as the setting for living out their calling in this life. That's your mission field, is this culture. Like all Christians, youth are also called to be reconcilers in our cultural moment. They need to be prepared for their moment, and they're not. I've worked alongside my wife with youth for many, many years, and I've encountered youth, even in our own church, who have no idea how to encounter the waves that are being pushed at them. Think of this, think of surfing. Any surfers out here, don't raise a hand, I don't wanna know, I don't like surfing. But it's a good analogy. Surfing, you go, you take your, you and your children go to the beach, and you have all these waves coming at you, you're an adult, you can handle the waves, your children can't. If you send them out there alone, with no, with no instruction, go, go tackle the waves, they'll die. You may survive because you've been groomed into it, you've practiced, you've gone into the waves. You need to surf alongside your children. The culture is bringing in waves and waves and waves, and if you're not there alongside them in the water, they'll get taken under. The, the current will rip them away from your hands. Casual Christianity will not save your children. They won't save the youth that are out there that, are out there that aren't your children that you should go after. We need to swim alongside. So this is basically, I'm calling some uh, more seasoned veterans into the fray (laughs) alongside us. We need to create an environment where youth can ask tough questions and wrestle with controversial topics. To me, any topic is fair game in my house with anybody. I will say this. There is a caveat to it. There is an age where ideas need to be, we need to really struggle with how we expose young, or especially like my three-year-old, I'm not gonna go, hey, you wanna talk about gender identity politics right now? I'm not gonna do that to Selah. I'm not gonna bring, but I'm going to age appropriate, bring these things in. And especially with with, uh, the youth that are at the age, 14, 15, we need to start having tough conversations at the dinner table and talk about what makes sense. Any topic to me is fair game. Um, there is a, uh, so we have these emojis up here. You're like, why did he have emojis up there? I have no idea. These are the typical responses that you, you're, you're, I still have like this dark place in my heart full of humor that's just like crazy. And so whenever I hear a weird, crazy question, like all questions to me are fair game. And I have to be like the stoic, like, yeah, that's a legitimate question you're asking right now. You know, this thing that you bring into me. And I'll give you an example of one where I had to like totally like bite my tongue and go, mm, yeah, I'm gonna answer this. Just totally think that it's respectable to ask this. And uh, my, I, I had to go away from my inner Steve Harvey because like the family feud, like you ever see him get a crazy response and he just like puts his hand on the table and was like, oh, listen, listen. His eyes are bugging out his head. And like I almost want that, that screen behind me to where I can go, And let's see the answer to the question of what are some crazy questions to ask, bing, you know, and have it just flare up, their question behind me. I want that. That's the dark part of my heart that wants that. So this is what he said to me, and I took him serious, and I took him with me. And he said, David, I said, yes, that is my name, He said, what if aliens landed in the field right over here? What would you as a Christian do if that happened? And I was like, all right, I'm going to the alien questions now. All right. It's 9:30. Um, and I said, I'd go up to them, shake their tentacle, and I would evangelize them. And he was like, what? And I'm like, I know what he was trying to do, like, aliens prove that God's not real if they land. And I'm like, I was like, no, no, no. I said, you know why I'd evangelize them? Because they're still in the same universe I'm in, and it's the one that God created. So if they're aliens coming and landing. So like, I took it that serious, where I started, like, and he was like, oh, all right, yeah, it's cool, I'll evangelize them with you. Now, if I had just gone, you're insane, aliens, you know, th- did that, like you all want to do when that question's ever posed, and you're justified on keeping that in. It's a normal response to that. But he eventually started asking me good questions. Had I just gone, oh, oh you idiot. He would never have brought legitimate doubts and questions to me. And so I, I encourage us to not be the emoji, especially not the sleeping one. That's just sloth. <laughs> and we know that that's not right. Um, yeah. You'll find, youth find that, who find that their difficult questions aren't welcome, taken seriously, or sufficiently addressed in church will look elsewhere for answers. So you may not wanna give them an ear. Somebody else is waiting to give them an ear. And in fact, the prince of the air is involved in that. And we ought to take even silly questions Or as long as they're honest. If it's just cynical questions, just don't give time to that. But if they're honest and even though you think they're silly, the prince of the air has somebody in the wings waiting to hear that and give them credence to believing in something else. So we ought to. Another reason why I think all questions are on the table is because I have had experience with youth where they'll say, you'll talk about anything. And I don't know if that's an insult. Maybe I talk too much. But uh, they're like, you're not afraid to go into any topic, and why should I be? Why should you be afraid to go into any topic? The only bad thing is if you speak outside of your knowledge on a topic. But I'm, I'm willing to go into any topic with anybody, and I'm willing to admit when I don't know something. And so the, one of the things that keeps uh, maybe some parents in fear of getting into these tough questions and handling the culture questions that are coming is because you're afraid to be found without an answer. I say jettison the fear and do some homework and study. You're an adult, you're still living, you need to continue your education. You need to see what's going on in the culture, especially if it's your children that are at stake. I know that this is important in our time. Um, We shouldn't be afraid of these things. We should always be willing to go and see what's, what's coming down the pipe. How many times, How about anybody here love the Psalms? Everybody. Uh, So we love the Psalms. David writes the Psalms. Do you have you ever paid attention to how often David questions the very existence of God? (laughs) And we celebrate the Psalms, and we're like they're the best works of poetry. He's like, do you even love me? (laughs) The question comes from your own house, and you're like, you just gotta believe. And we get really concerned. David was never condemned for his questioning. God met him in it. And we want to, here's the hyper-spiritualized aspect of things, is we want to just say, just believe, just believe. No, 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 Jesus said, come, let us reason together. He said, be patient with those who doubt. Older generations present here in the room, though you have much more experience than us and much more knowledge than us, you are still commanded to be patient with those who doubt. Even though you're like, well, I'm from a generation where... I, no, sorry, there's no excuse to just be the, the, the crackly old guy that's like, I don't have time for these questions. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Jude says you do have to be patient with these questions and these things. Um, often seekers become mockers if they're not allowed to wrestle with their doubts and their questions. Jesus did not condemn um, uh, Thomas for saying... I, I don't know if I can trust this yet. I don't know. Did Jesus come to him and say, you idiot, here I am? No, he said, here's my hands. He gave him evidence. He gave him good reason to believe. I love it. Here's a problem. is I'm running out of time. Um, many students struggle with these ideas because they haven't been taught how to think. Can't distinguish between an assertion from an argument there are statements like this that you could just, next time you hear it, you can now level this charge back, okay? We can't be sure whether Jesus actually existed. Have you ever heard that? Anybody ever heard? We can't even be sure if he actually walked the face of the earth. Do you know that that is evidence of somebody who is not engaging in intelligence or actual historical study? There's not a single credible historian of that time that would ever make that statement, and I'll get into that very briefly here. I, had a, I like to do this. I like to say from the pulpit, come at me. Ask any question. You buy my lunch. I'll pray for yours. Let's talk about anything. You know what I'm saying? Like I like doing that, and I like saying, you believe that what you believe is better than mine? Come on, let's go. Let's, let's have lunch. Let's enjoy each other's company, and I'll entertain all your questions, and I'll ask you questions, and all this stuff. So I did this, and a young guy actually took me up on it. I was surprised. I was like, nobody ever does this. I keep threatening it all the time, and finally somebody's taking the bait. So I reeled that fish in, and we went to Chipotle, where all theological debates should take place, because you get both steak and chicken. Now, okay, um, and he starts. He just start, I said, "What do you believe?" And he say, "What he believes." And I said, "That's just an assertion. You haven't argued for that being true, huh?" And he would just say all these things. And he, he brought this one out. We don't even know if Jesus actually existed. And I said, I could quote about five atheists right now that say that that's wrong. I could give you the book that they said it in, the chapter that they said it in. I won't even quote Christians on the matter. And I was able to give him verse. I, I said, I'll quote a Jewish historian on it. I'll quote uh, a Greek historian on it. Josephus in the Antiquities of the Jews. Tacitus, if you want a Greek, here, take that and run with it. And he's just like, didn't know what to do with it. And on every topic, I had a place to point and say, here it is, there it is. You ought to do it too. Even if you're not fantastic at it, you gotta start and get into that if you wanna reach this generation. He had nothing to come back with, no argument, because we're not taught logic and reason in school. I don't remember a class on it ever. It didn't start hitting me until I started trying to live my faith out in public, and then people would start coming back to me with questions and start pushing back on things. And I was like, this is weird, this is different. And then I started learning logic. I love it, there's great books about it. They confuse feelings with reasons. Just because you feel a thing doesn't make it a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it does. Um, <clears throat> Just because you feel something is true doesn't make it true. Have you ever been to the doctor to get your appendix out? Ryan McKinsey has. And I was there, performing the surgery. No, uh, I, was, I was there. He was there to get his appendix out. And had the doctor said, I feel the appendix is here, and starts drawing there to take it out, I'd go, Ryan, let's go. Let's get out of here. I'd have, if he was unconscious and on the table and the doctor starts drawing there to take out his heart, I would have picked Ryan up on my shoulders and ran him out of the building. Because the truth is, your heart is here and your appendix is somewhere else. Um... <laughs> I know it's not there. That's enough. <laughs> and so it's funny because that's ridiculous, isn't it, if a doctor drew there? And some, and, but our culture takes its brain out and applies a different manner of thinking and of logic to truth when it comes to moral truth. You can't do that and find it. You can't do that and discover truth. Truth is truth is truth. It's not a matter of pride or humility or anything like that. It's true regardless, but we won't pipe up and say anything about it, even though piping up and saying something about it in that realm is more important than the doctors, because I at least knew my friend was gonna go to heaven if he took out his heart there, but it's more serious, more serious than going to the doctor and him trying to take an appendix out right here, and we, and youth confuse feeling with truth and we have to be able to argue that. That's not the way to find truth at all. Sorry, last one. Constant entertainment feed. The constant source of entertainment to us is man's most infinite appetite for distractions. We've never lived in a time right now where our, or where our appetite for distractions is more easily appeased than now. You can take net. Some of you are watching Netflix right now. I, I know. We got a guy working on it, trying to sever the. You 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 have every opportunity to not engage your mind, and youth now. My daughter included has a tablet, and we've got to like whip it out of her hands, and uh, it, it, we have to be very purposed to to find a way to crash that obsession and that addiction, to just constantly wanting to be entertained. It's not, it doesn't engage reality and it doesn't help engage their minds to tackle the waves that are coming. Uh, I'll close with just uh, two scriptures here. Paul in Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. How are we going to do that? The generations coming don't know how to do it. Daniel 12.3 says, I love this this is a, an encouraging thing to end on how about this 12 daniel twelve three. those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever that can be you
0: here are your small group questions for this week, and we put up the recommended reading. This is a really excellent book if you're a parent, if you're a mentor, if you live in a world with youth, which is all of you, you should be. uh, We recommend reading this book. It will be very, very helpful to you um, in knowing what you believe and helping uh, detangle some of these issues that youth are facing. So we can go ahead and stand and we'll pray. Young people need mentors. They need parents. They need friends who are willing to have difficult, uncomfortable conversations. Can you, no matter what, where you fall in the generational range, can you be someone that commits to saying, okay, I'm gonna be open to these conversations. No matter how uncomfortable it makes me, no matter how unprepared I feel, it's gonna push me to study. Can you commit to being that person? because it's not helpful to the youth when facing everything they have to face if they feel like there's only their own peers to get advice from, or professors, or people that have different uh, points of view, which is not bad to get different points of view, but they need to know that they are part of this narrative, of this story, that they have a purpose, and that that purpose doesn't mean it can't be fulfilled because of the cultural moment that they live in now.